0: Well, it's great to see some of you guys start serving in the church, and some of the most popular areas that a lot of you ladies serve in is in the nursery, and I think, man, you guys have a lot of patience. I'm a parent, and I don't have that much patience with my kids, and I only got two kids there, but you guys got like seven or eight toddlers in there, and when you're in there, and they're all fighting and complaining and wanting to steal toys from each other, I sometimes wonder how you do it, right? I got two kids that fight over everything that they have, but what is it like to have seven or eight little toddlers in there. Some of us, you know, you could tell us about it afterwards, because that's your experience on Sunday mornings at nine o'clock, or that's your experience at uh, five o'clock, or maybe you serve for navigating motherhood during the week, or women's Bible study, and you're kind of in there with the kids, and if you think about it, the kids fighting thing is uh, something that kind of continues, if you think about it. When they're little, and they're getting in fights, what do you do? You try to stop them, separate them, Try to look them in the eye and say, hey, you need to get along. You need to share, right? You give them some kind of talking to, and then you hope that you can kind of reconcile these kids back together and see them play together again. That's basically what you do. But I don't know if you thought about this, but the older you get, the fighting doesn't stop. It's not like once you grow out of, I don't know, stealing each other's toys, that you never have conflicts with anyone anymore. If you think about it, your fighting just gets more sophisticated, And the kind of fighting that takes place maybe moves from stealing toys and going back and forth to start maybe talking bad about other people or maybe telling things that aren't true to others or maybe slandering or lying so that you can get back at people. Maybe sometimes it's expressed in forms where you're really just nasty with other people or maybe you've experienced this where people have been nasty to you. The fighting doesn't stop when you grow up. Now, I want you to imagine that parent figure, that leader figure in a classroom with toddlers, one of their jobs is to make peace between fighting kids, right? Well, if there's people who are adults who are still fighting and peace is a good thing, you'd think that God would want some people to step in and try to reconcile two parties together. That's true. In fact, Jesus says, In the Beatitudes, in the seventh Beatitude, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, which is literally a word that he makes up. We don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. We don't see any parallel in the Old Testament, but it's this concept that Jesus gives that you will be a happy person if you step into a conflict and try to resolve a conflict. See, that goes against all earthly wisdom. You would think that the best way for you to be happy is for you to avoid any conflict that other people have? Why would I want to get involved in their business? I can just let them fight. That's not a problem for me as long as I stay out of it. Well, Jesus calls us as Christians to something even higher than that. He calls us to be peacemakers. And in the process, you might be thinking, well, I'm going to catch strays from both sides. Like if I get involved in conflicts, I might have both sides not like me if I do the right thing. And Jesus goes on to say in the seventh and eighth beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. And then he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted and reviled and people utter stuff against you that's not true. You're gonna be happy in the end. Why? Because you are sharing in the suffering that Jesus had, and you're also gonna share in all the reward that Jesus brings when he comes, okay? So that's kind of a basic background to this, but open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at what Jesus has to say here. And I wanna study this in depth, thinking that you and I, if we're claiming to be disciples of Christ, one of our goals should be to be like Christ. He's gonna say later in this chapter, he says, you should be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. That word "perfect" kind of scares us because we think, okay, does that mean um, totally morally without sin? And, and it involves that, but it's more than that. "Perfect" is the word in Greek, which means to be complete or mature. Sometimes it's translated to be an adult. He in in uh, Philippians three, Paul says, "Those of us who are mature, let us think that way." It's the word "perfect." So the idea is we should be aiming in our life to be more and more mature, more and more perfect, more and more like Christ. And these two areas, peacemaking and persecution, are ways that I know each and every disciple of Christ in this room can do something better. We can aspire to something greater, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So check it out. Verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, this is the third time we've studied these blessing statements, and remember, blessing equivalents the word uh, happy, right? So it's something about being in a good place or a good state of mind or something like that, right? And we define this by looking at the Old Testament when God has blessing statements where he says, blessed is the person who does this or that. What it means is God is looking at a person whose life is characterized by what he describes and says that person is the truly fulfilled, satisfied, and happy person. Or even if they don't feel that way now, they will be in the end. In other words, that person is going to be truly happy. And we've said, as looking at these Beatitudes, we want to be the kind of person that Jesus calls truly happy. So on the top of your worksheet, you're going to see that every week. You see it again this week. This is the last time we're studying this Beatitudes section. I want you to write this down. How to be the kind of person who enjoys true happiness. Okay, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. That's what we talked about the last three weeks. Not to say that the road to happiness makes sense to start with peacemaking right? Because that doesn't make much sense. Why would you want to get involved in other people's conflicts? That's not going to make you happy in the end. But Jesus says, no, the people who will be happy in the end, you know what they're going to do in their lifestyle? They're going to serve as peacemakers. Just like some of you in the nursery, when you've got two toddlers that are fighting with each other, when you have to reconcile both and you talk to both sides and you try to bring them together and make them play together as, you know, basic as that example is. That's what a peacemaker is, okay? So with that in mind, I want us to write this down for point number seven, which is point number one. You might notice it starts with seven and eight. That's because these are the last two Beatitudes we see. First one, point number seven, is this. I want you to serve as a peacemaker and enjoy God's family love, okay? That's the two sides, remember. All these Beatitudes have two sides to them. A statement, like blessed are the peacemakers, and then a promise, for they shall be called sons of God. Not just children of God, but sons of God. What does it mean to be a son of God? Well, when you hear that phrase first, you probably think of Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus is the unique son of God in the sense that he is like God in every way. To be called a son of God is for someone to look at you. If you're a peacemaker and what really is happening in your life, you are acting like God. You're like God. And you get the benefits of being associated with God, and even the love, and that's, I, what, that's, the why, the, that's why I said family love, right? Because I think that's what's being encapsulated in the idea of being called a son of God, that you enjoy the privileges, the benefits, and the love of God. Why? Well, because in your life, you're showing to be a peacemaker, which is being like God. If you're here in Matthew 5, just drop down real quick. Matthew 5, look at verse uh, 44. He says the same thing. This is later on, This time, he's telling people, hey, do something that's really hard and countercultural. Love the people that don't love you back. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You might have heard that before. Maybe you've not thought about what that looks like in your life, but notice what Jesus says here. This is Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. That's weird. Like, that's the same phrase, being sons of the Father, being sons of God. What does that mean? He goes on. He says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends his reign on the just and the unjust. So what's the point? Jesus is trying to say, when you act as a peacemaker, you're acting like God. When you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, guess what you're doing? You're being like God. Why? Because God sends his rain, he sends his sunshine, not just on the people who love him back, but he loves the people who don't even love him back. That's not natural. That's not how we feel. Some of us have this sense of right and wrong where we think, I'm not going to show any kindness to that person because all they've been to me is mean. I'm not going to try to make peace between those two people because all they do is fight. Why Why would I try to help? What what good could my efforts do in their life? In fact, they're kind of a pain in the neck to me. So why would I try to even help? Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and be a peacemaker. Would you call yourself a peacemaker? Some of us aren't peacemakers. We're barely peacekeepers. Some of us are, uh, you know, fight starters or, I don't know, war war mongers or whatever that looks like, right, in your relationships. Some of us, instead of being the one who brings the peace back, some of us are the ones who start the problem. The Bible has a word for that. You can write it down. It's the word quarrelsome. Quarrelsome is a word. If you ever run across it in the New Testament, it's kind of like a hard one because you're like, well, I don't know exactly what that means. It means the opposite of being a peacemaker. In fact, Paul reminds Timothy in the books that he writes to him, make sure that anybody who's like trying to serve in the church or be a leader, make sure they're not quarrelsome. Make sure they're not like starting a fight with everybody. Make sure they're not like, you know, always chest up, ready to fight everybody. That's like, that's a problem in the Christian life because it's hard to be quarrelsome and a peacemaker at the same time. If the goal is to create harmony in relationships, really hard to do if all you do is start fights. Really hard to do if all you do is divide people. That's really difficult to do. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus is calling people to be peacemakers because God is a peacemaker. I want you to think in a big, big sense How is God a peacemaker? What did God do to create peace between people that were fighting against him? What did Jesus do for his enemies? The Bible's very clear about this. In Romans chapter five, verses eight, nine, and 10, it says that Jesus, while we were still enemies, died for us. So what does Jesus do to be a peacemaker? Well, Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He sacrificed his life so that you could be at peace with God, That's the term in the Bible, reconciliation. It's used a lot in the book of Romans. It's used a lot in 2 Corinthians 5. What it means is that you've got two parties that are not friends with each other, and they get brought together as friends. Who did that? Well, Jesus did that. Ultimately, God did it with us. What was the, what was the problem that we had with God? I hope that you've heard this before. and Maybe you've thought deeply about this. If you're a Christian, I know you have. But think about the problem of sin that we have with God. We break God's rules. God's perfect. He's not moving, right? He's not doing anything different. But we break his rules. That creates enmity or um, some kind of bad relationship with God, right? Our sin does that. And when we keep on sinning, we keep insulting that God who's been nothing but good to us. And we keep doing that and doing that over and over again. And that says, the Bible describes this as us storing up God's wrath. Because in order for God to be good, he has to take account of everything wrong that we do. And we keep choosing to do wrong. We keep choosing to disobey him. And that keeps storing up wrath on our account. How can that be dealt with? God's a righteous judge. What does he do to deal with that? Well, there's two things he can do. He can either punish us or punish someone else in our place. And that's what Romans 5 says Jesus did. God chose to punish Jesus in our place. Listen to this. This is Romans 5 verse 9. It says, since therefore... We've now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from him by the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation or friendship or a new relationship or peace Jesus calls us to be peacemakers and I would challenge you to think you're probably not going to be a peacemaker in any real good sense unless you are at peace with God. Right? That's step 1. If you're not at peace with God, you're probably not going to be a peacemaker. Right? But then there are, there are plenty of you perhaps that are at peace with God who are not really living like a peacemaker. You're not really trying to do that. So here's where we should start. If we're talking about you, if you're at peace with God because of what Jesus did, and you want to be a peacemaker, I think this is where it starts, you want the people in your life to be at peace with God. Just like Jesus wanted you to be at peace with God, and he did something about it, I think the good place for us to start is to think, I want the people in my life to be at peace with God, so what can I do about that as a peacemaker? Well, you can't die on the cross for their sin, right? (laughs) You don't qualify, right? So you're not going to do exactly what Jesus does, But you probably can do something instead of hoping and wishing that maybe, you know, they'll become Christians because someone will talk to them. Maybe the thing that you should do is say, I want to be a peacemaker. That means they're going to hear the news of peace from my lips. I'm going to tell them the good news that they can be at peace with God. And I'm not just going to tell them once, but I'm going to have conversations with them to plead with them to be right with God. Write this verse down, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You see this all laid out perfectly here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, 19, 20, Paul says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God has now said through Jesus, you as a Christian are at peace with God. Great. That's something that Jesus did for you. Now, what does Jesus tell you to do? Now, he gives you this message or this ministry of reconciliation. Now, your job is to say, I want the people in my life to be at peace with God. What's the first thing about being a peacemaker? Well, it looks like me trying to get the people in my life to be at peace with God. How do I do that? Well, I'll keep reading. He goes on. He says in verse number 19, he That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So it's like we represent God and we're saying, hey, I'm a representative of God. I know this sounds weird. Imagine you have this conversation in your you know, third period next week. Uh, you're sitting there saying, hey, I have a message for you. I'm a representative of God. I've been at peace with God. I want you to be at peace with God. Right? And you can hear this message and you can be at peace with God too what would you start doing with that person, right? They'd probably need some explanation, right? If you said, hey, I'm a messenger of God and I've got something to tell you, it'd be like, whoa, <laughs> it's too early for that. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, you probably have to do some explaining, right? You might have to maybe quote some things from the Bible. You might have to explain some background to all this. You might have to explain who God is. You might have to explain the problem of sin and show them how even their own guilt is evidence that the Bible is telling the complete truth that we're separated from God because of our sin but you've got to tell them the good news that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, that he wants to make peace between you and God. He's done what's necessary, so now you need to submit and follow him and become a peacemaker too. You probably say those things, and then you would do what he says next. This is 2 Corinthians five twenty. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, right? You would probably do some kind of imploring. Not uh, That means like, really strongly saying, you know, not just this is like a suggestion, like maybe it's just a good way to live, like I live this way, like more than that, I, I really want you to think about this, I, I need you to consider this, it's it's kind of being pushy, like if someone implores you to buy something, you know how you, you walk around, if you ever, you know, go to the mall, or you don't go to the mall, but you go to the spectrum, and you walk by those little stands that are selling those dumb little toys, or the little helicopter thing that flies up and down, you, you want to just like get, get your eyes down, and like Get past them, right? Because you know, if you start, like, getting interested in all this, they're going to start imploring you to buy one. Oh, you got to check this out. Oh, try it. Here, take the controls. And then they're selling you, right? That's what it means to implore. So as uncomfortable as that might seem, that's what it looks like for you to be a peacemaker. Not just to say, hey, here's my life. I'm a Christian, you know. It's interesting. Maybe you should consider it. But to be someone who actually, out of love and care for people, Sit down with them and really try to implore them. You you really need to be right with God. You know you're, we all have this sin problem. We all understand. You know, it it messes up our relationship with God. I really want you to consider this. And then talk to them. Ask them questions and and try to answer their questions. And if you don't know the answers to all their questions, say, I want to talk to you about this again. Because I'm imploring you to be right with God. That's the first big movement of what it means to be a peacemaker. And Romans 10 says the same thing. He says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How do they believe in him in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? As it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Point is, God loves to have you and me go in people's lives and tell them, God can be at peace with you. You need to make peace with God. Jesus did what's necessary. Are you doing any of that work? If this says, blessed are the peacemakers, are you doing any of that work of peacemaking? If God looked at your life, would he see any of that kind of peacemaking? Like trying to talk to people about their salvation, trying to talk to people about their soul, trying to talk to people about the gospel, trying to implore people to be right with God? Or would he see a lot of shallow conversations? Would he see a lot of uh, talking about non-spiritual things all the time? Would he see a lot of you trying to make friends with people at school without ever considering their soul? Would he see compromise? Would he see laziness in the Christian life? Like, what would he see? Because Jesus is saying, we should all aspire to this. Blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, Jesus is ultimately the peacemaker. That's one aspect of peacemaking, right, between God and men. There's another aspect of peacemaking It's kind of what we started with, that Christians, we should do the role of making peace between two parties that are not getting along here on earth, right? Not just between God and people, but between people and people. Between this girl and that girl in your small group. Between this brother and that sister. Between those people. like This is difficult territory to start talking about peacemaking. I want you to think about what kind of qualities would you need to take on to really help make peace in situations. If there's one quality. You should write this down. I really think that this is at the heart of peacemaking. I can prove it with a verse. I want you to write this word down. Humility. Humility. If you're going to be a peacemaker it's going to start with humility and that humility realistically needs to spread to all parties right because if you're humble and you want to reconcile with somebody and they're not humble and they don't want to reconcile then you're not really going to have full reconciliation right you can forgive somebody and you can be humble and apologize and be profuse about all that and if they don't forgive you there's not going to be full reconciliation right you did what you could you can't control what they do, but you can certainly make it easier or harder by your humility. So if you're going to be a peacemaker, you need to be humble. Or another thing to think about, like um, part of humility is like a self-forgetfulness. Just thinking like what I feel in this situation doesn't matter. Because remember, if you're the person in the nursery making peace between two fighting toddlers, you know what might happen? Both toddlers might hit you. Both toddlers might throw something at you, or they might turn away from you, and you can stop in the middle of that and say, do you realize I'm trying to help you? Don't you understand that I'm going out of my way to help you in your little dumb situation? I I shouldn't even help you anymore. You could do that, because that would feel like, oh, that's kind of how I feel. But if you're really trying to make the peace, if you're really trying to see the end goal of two people making peace, then you got to stay humble. And know that you might get opposed from from both sides here. The verse I was talking about that I want you to write down is James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. To be a peacemaker, to have this humility. I just want you to notice what God's word says about this. Early in that passage, he says, a lot of people think they're wise. A lot of people think that they're really, you know, helpful. But their life is full of all these kinds of divisions and envy and malice. A lot of people think they're really smart and really godly and really wise, and they're not. But then he says, here's what true wisdom looks like, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So he's describing what it looks like to really be a, a peacemaker here. And then verse 18, he goes even further. He says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace... By those who make peace. So to sow something means to put seeds in the ground. So the idea is a person who's making peace, what do they start doing? It's like they're putting righteousness like in the ground, and then what's gonna sprout up? Peace. You start to act righteously with your friends, you start to be a peacemaker, you're gonna actually like do righteous things and say righteous things and have righteous attitudes, and you're doing everything the right way. That's what righteousness means. Like doing it the right way, doing it God's way. And then what's going to happen? Well, then you're going to see peace blossom from those relationships. So part of my point here is some of you are, like, hearing this, thinking, I am the peacemaker. So, like, in my family, right, my mom and my dad fight, and I'm the one who, like, helps out. And, you know, this brother and that sister, they're always fighting. I'm always kind of in the middle of it. Some of you, that is the truth in in your families. One thing I want you to notice is when he talks about this peace, where does it start? He says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Just like we talked about in verse 8 of Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and then blessed are the peacemakers. So purity and peace are connected in a lot of Bible passages, and you see purity being necessary for peace. Here's my point. Some people want to make peace, but are willing to compromise sin in order to make peace. To think, well, we just need peace, so yeah, I'll compromise, I'll sin, I'll do what's wrong, just in order to make peace. So, that's not what Jesus is trying to say. He's not trying to say, you should make peace at all costs. He's not saying that. He's saying purity has to precede peace. It has to start from righteousness. You have to have that involved here. Uh, Some ways that people put it, he's not saying that you're making appeasement. But you're making peace there's a difference right if you know your history your US, uh, your u.s history your world history you remember before world war ii there was a very famous uh, general a very famous person who was uh, high up in english politics who thought that he stopped hitler he, he thought like I, I gave him what he wanted i made appeasement there will be no war the, f- the famous quote was like there's peace in our times right? Chamberlain thought, like, oh, yeah, I, I solved the world. And he came back home, and he bragged about it to everybody. Like, I created world peace, which basically what he did was he gave Hitler, like, a little bit of land. He gave him some extra things, but he didn't really give him everything he wanted. And He thought, look, I made a compromise. Look at this. But that didn't create lasting peace. In fact, it was, like, really short-lived. And then he looked dumb because he announced to everybody, look what kind of a peacemaker I am. What he did was he did appeasement. He, he, he tried to give a little to get a little, and he tried to kind of solve the issue by trying to appease the situation, but it it wasn't righteous. Like, even in what he did, there was some compromise and some shadiness and some probably giving up too much of good, and it didn't create the kind of lasting peace uh, that was needed at that moment. Now, what I'm trying to say is, if you're acting as a peacemaker, what I'm not telling you to do is ignore everyone's sin. I'm not telling you to ignore, like, if you're dealing with two people, right? Imagine it. You've got two people who aren't getting along, I'm not saying you say, well, you know what? This person sinned, that person sinned. Well, but they both kind of feel like they're right. So, you know, what you did wasn't that bad. No, 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 you're totally right. Oh, you, oh you're totally right too. No, I know you're right. Like they sinned, right? That's true. When oh, you talk to this person, well, it's their fault. That's not the way to make peace, to not be honest about sin. It has to come from purity and righteousness first. Another way that we see that in the Sermon on the Mount, two passages. First, in Matthew 5, 21 to 26, Jesus says, if you think that someone has something against you, if you think that your brother has some kind of uh, complaint against you, uh, says it right here in um, verse number 23. This is Matthew 5, 23. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So the idea is that you've done wrong and that someone else might have a grudge against you because of something you did. He says, if that's true, if you remember, oh, I, I wronged that person. I sinned against that person. He says, then leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. Right? So that's in the situation where you've done wrong, and you know you need to apologize. Okay. Then, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something similar about peacemaking. He says this is uh, Matthew 7, 3, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, you see their sin, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye, right? It's this idea of saying, wow, you got such a big problem yourself, and you're trying to fix their problem, but you haven't fixed your problem first. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your eye? Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay. So what do we have in that situation? So Matthew 5 is, I know I did something wrong against you. It's my job to go and talk to you and say, hey, I did you wrong. Please forgive me. Let's be reconciled. Okay. Matthew 7 is, when someone's done something against you, when you notice the sin in somebody else, what are you supposed to do? Do you notice that the first step in both of those passages is that you deal with your own sin first? Even in Matthew 7, Jesus says, there'll be people that sin against you. But what's your response when you got a problem with somebody else, what they did? If you got in some argument or some fight, and you don't like what someone said about you, the first step is, okay, do I have a log in my eye? What did I say to them? What hurtful things did I say? What hurtful response did I have? Maybe it's because I think I was being defensive because they did wrong. Fine. But what did you do? How did you contribute to the problem? How do you really be a peacemaker? The first step is that word we just talked about, humility. That's where it starts. It takes a lot of humility in Matthew 5 to know that you've wronged someone, to literally leave church, go be reconciled, and then come back to church, right? That takes a lot of humility. Then in Matthew 7, if you think someone sinned against you, it takes a lot of humility to go take the speck out of your eye. It's like you're going to apologize to them. Like they may have sinned against you, but that's you apologizing to them for my part. I had a part in our fight. Please forgive me. I responded wrong when you said whatever you said. I, I did the wrong. Please forgive me for that. Right? Notice what happens when you do that. That usually starts the, the, the apology exchange, right? If you're really in conflict with somebody, if you start, even if you think they're in the wrong, if you can identify the, the log that's in your eye and then go try to deal with it with them, you're going to notice you're probably going to have more success in peacemaking there. Humility is the key. A lot to say. One thing I don't really have time to say, but um, peacemakers don't enjoy peace in their life. Okay? It sounds a little contradictory, but peacemakers does not mean that your life is full of peace. In fact, if, you're, if you are a peacemaker, that might cause problems in your life. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew 10. So, same book of the Bible, five chapters later. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. That seems contradictory. So I'm not come to bring peace, but a sword. You're like, okay, well, what's Jesus talking about? I thought he came wants us to be peacemakers. You know, his whole birth was about bringing peace. What is this about? Well, later in that that text, he's going to explain that when he comes to earth, he's going to divide a father against a son, a mother against a daughter. The point is, some people will embrace him, some people won't, and because of that, some people will will actually it will cause problems. The fact that like, and for some of your families, right? maybe your mom's a Christian and your dad's not a Christian. That creates problems. Maybe your parents are the Christians and all the cousins and all the in-laws, none of them are Christians. And then there's conflict and problems that maybe you're starting to hear about now. It's like, well, why did that happen? Well, perhaps it's because there's division because of what Jesus did. So the point is that not every situation you're going to have a ton of peace, even if you're a peacemaker. Well, Romans 12, 18, it's kind of the summary of all this. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's kind of the the bottom line. If possible, which sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, so far as it depends on you, which you can always take the log out of your eye. That always depends on you. You going and confessing always depends on you. As long as you can do that, live peaceably with all. You might notice that if you start being a peacemaker, There'll be some people that don't want peace. And you might even be, in other words, persecuted. Right? Well, if you're thinking that, that's where Jesus goes next. In Matthew 5, verse 10, look what he says. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He doesn't say, blessed are everyone who suffers, because that's not true. A lot of people suffer because of their own mistakes. And they're punished because they choose to do wrong. He's not talking about them. He's saying, happy are the people who are opposed, the word persecuted literally means to like be pursued or chased down, or it feels like someone's out to get you. That's what persecution is, because of righteousness sake. Or in other words, because you did the right thing. Like you did the right thing, and because you did the right thing, now you're in trouble with whoever. That happens a lot if you really think about it. If you do the right thing, and then you get opposed or in trouble, or you say the right thing, and people don't like you for it, or you do the right thing, and your coworkers think, "Man, why are they keeping the rules? We all kind, of, we all clock out late. We all clock in um, late. It doesn't matter. We all, you know, kind of bend the rules. It doesn't matter. Why do you? You're kind of the stick in the mud. Right? You're persecuted or pursued because you did the right thing." He says, "Blessed are you. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Right? I think that's the last beatitude. But look at what verse 11 does. Verse 11 shifts from talking about people, blessed are people who do this, blessed are you, blessed are this, to talking about the disciples, or the people right in front of him. So he shifts from third person to second person, if you know your grammar, He says, blessed are you when others revile you. That means to insult or to even mock, the Bible uses that word sometimes. If people mock you, insult you, or persecute you, which means just generally to be pursued, chased down, and... Blessed are you when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, right, for Jesus. So now Jesus has in two qualifications. He said, you're blessed if you suffer for righteousness, like for doing the right thing, not the wrong thing, or for doing something for me or being associated with me. He says, okay, then you're blessed. You're going to be happy in the end. He even says in verse 12, not that you just will be happy at some point. He commands you present tense right now, verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven present tense not future tense not it will be great in heaven not hey one day you'll get to experience it he just says you should just be happy knowing right now your reward in heaven is continuing to grow he says for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you and all those people are thinking yeah the prophets they were the good guys But Jesus even says later in the book, he says if the prophets were here today, you'd probably be fighting them and persecuting them too, just like your parents and your your forefathers. So what is Jesus trying to say, this last beatitude, number eight? He's trying to say this. As a Christian, you should embrace hostility for doing right and enjoy God's approval. Embrace hostility for doing right and enjoy God's approval. Last time he said, you're going to be called sons of God. So you're like God. You you get the, the family love right? You're you're on the same team with God. Now, he says, you'll be having this great reward in heaven, and the prophets and the people who were righteous in the Old Testament, you're just right along on their team. It's kind of like if you start a sport, right? Football season is starting right now, um, and, you know, people are getting on these teams, and they're getting hurt for the first time, right? In week one, people start to get hurt, and when you're part of any kind of sports team, that's like involves physical activity, so not golf. So uh, those of you who are golfers like me, right, we don't count in this, this illustration, but you know, people who are playing, you know, real sports, whatever, you're gonna get hurt at some point and you're gonna get some bruises and you're gonna have problems. And it's like, when you get those bruises and you get hurt while you're on the team, there's almost this sense of like, well, now I really know I'm a part of this team because I'm, I'm getting beat up for this team, right? It's especially just, you can see it with football right? A very physical contact sport, us versus them. If I've got scars, if I've got broken bones while being on the field, it's like, well, I did it with my team and for my team. Like if I want assurance and confidence that I'm a part of this team, if I got hurt on the field, that's a lot of assurance. That's a lot of confidence that I'm a part of this team. Jesus is saying the same thing about being a Christian. He says, one of the reasons you can have assurance and confidence when you go to sleep at night and you think, man, am I a Christian or not? One of the things that can give you assurance is, well, what are your scars? How have you suffered for doing right? And he says, that should like assure you. You should rejoice and be glad, even in the pain. Because you look at it and say, this is another proof and evidence that I'm on Jesus' side. Because he did the right thing and suffered for it, right? John 15, he says, I was persecuted. And if, if you're my disciple, you're going to be persecuted too. If the world hated me, they'll hate you too. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that's a promise. So some of you, perhaps, are not Christians right now, and maybe you want to be. This is one of the things that needs to be a part of the cost that you count. You need to recognize that being on Jesus' team will lead to some kind of persecution. Some kind of persecution. It could be as small as being reviled or insulted, which, by the way, God doesn't treat very lightly. In fact, the the cross-reference here in Luke 6 when he preaches the same idea, listen to what Jesus says. This is the version of Beatitudes in Luke 6. Jesus says there, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Remember, this is for Jesus. This is for righteousness. This is not because you're just a jerk and everybody hates you. And you're like, yes, I love this sermon. Like, I'm suffering. But it's like, I have no friends. I'm excluded. Well, is that your fault? Right? Like, maybe, maybe. no offense, right? Sorry. Uh, but like, maybe that's a, a youth thing. That's not a Jesus thing. Right? But if you're excluded and, and you don't go back and you're not invited with those friends anymore because you said, no, I, you know, you guys are drinking. I'm not, I'm not drinking. Right? If you say, I'm not going to do what you guys are doing. Right? And oh, now I'm starting to get excluded. Now they don't want to be with me anymore. Right? Jesus says, happy are you, blessed are you, when you're excluded or maybe even reviled. When they say stuff about you, that's not true. They utter all kinds of things, evil, that are false on my account. Right? People lie about Christians all the time. Right? You heard it. Maybe you've even done it. The point is, he says, you're, you should be blessed and happy. Jesus says in Luke 6, hate. Exclude, revile, spurn. Your name is evil. Four things on account of the Son of Man. Then Jesus says, "Rejoice in that day and leap for joy." So we're not just talking about some kind of internal tranquility, right? Because you might think, "Oh, rejoice!" Yeah, like I'm rejoicing. He says, "Leap for joy." I don't know what you think. I haven't leapt for joy in a long time. Okay, maybe I have, but I, I don't remember like the last time. But you know, when you leap for joy, it's, it's kind of like a, I don't know, that's like an outburst of joy, right? It's not like a subtle happiness. So here's what Jesus says. If you're persecuted and you start to realize, I'm being persecuted right now. I want to do the right thing, and because I'm saying the right thing and, and not going to go along with the sin that they're doing, they're excluding me. Jesus says, you should leap for joy in that day, not in the future day, not when you get all your reward, leap for joy in that day that you're persecuted. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Same idea. You're on the team. The other side of all these beatitudes is the woes, and and we don't see those in Matthew chapter 5, In that sermon, when Jesus preached this, I don't think he preached the woes. When he's preaching in Luke 6, he gives the blessings and the curses, right? Woe just means like curses. In Luke 6, here's the corresponding woe. So he says, hey, you're blessed if people hate you. You're blessed if people exclude you for my sake. Okay, woe to you. Curses on you, right? Uh, You're in a bad place if, listen to this, when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets, not to the the pagan non-Christians, but the false prophets. A false prophet in the Old Testament was someone who said, I'm right with God, but they didn't have the correct message of God. And people said, oh, we like that kind of Christian. We like that kind of follower of God. Not like those other people that keep saying the stuff that God says that I don't like. I like those people of God that say the things that I like. And everyone speaks well of them and applauds them. Jesus says, woe to you if all people speak well of you. I think for a lot of us, We may be so afraid of being hated, reviled, excluded, or persecuted, or whatever, because we're afraid of people not liking us. Jesus says it's a problem if everybody looks at you and likes you. If all these non-Christians look at you and think, oh man, that kind of Christian, I like that kind of Christian. Have you ever thought about that? That maybe, perhaps, you could be striving for everyone to like you at school and everyone to like you on your sports team and you're doing all that you can to fit in with them for the purpose, trying to be liked. If you're doing that, there's probably a good sign that you're probably not standing out righteously. You're probably not doing the righteous things that you should do. Or perhaps you're actually going even further and maybe joining in the sinful things that they're doing, perhaps, Maybe you're not suffering because you're not living righteous. Maybe you're not suffering because you're ashamed of Jesus. A lot of people don't get marked as Christians because they never talk about Jesus. Listen to Jesus say this in Luke 9, 26. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Bible, right? His words. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Well, I'm not ashamed of Jesus, and Jesus is pretty well respected. Are you ashamed of Jesus' words? Like I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me am i ashamed of his words do i try to like explain away jesus's words like you've heard it from of old that one man shall marry one woman be one flesh are you ashamed of his words he says you're ashamed of me and my words well the son of man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father of the holy and of of the holy angels ashamed of you before who before god It's like only the people that are unashamed of Jesus are the ones that are showing good evidence in this life that they actually know God, that they're actually going to be these happy people. This can catch a lot of us, I think, because a lot of us can have like our lives so split that like we fit in with the church people at church, we fit in with the school people at school, we fit in with the sports people at sports, and we never live a consistent Christian life. We're never righteous in all three areas, and because of that, we're we're chameleons, We're trying to fit in here and there and there. And the reality is like, well, who are you really? Because Jesus says the happy people are the ones who actually live righteously. And I say, how could you possibly be all excited when you're suffering? The apostles kind of show us what this looks like in the early church. In Acts chapter 5, listen to what Luke says about this situation with the apostles. So the apostles had been put in jail and not just put in jail, they had been told very strictly, you cannot tell people about Jesus and his resurrection ever again. It's over. Done. You're never going to do it again, okay? And just to prove it to you, just to remind you what's going to happen, they beat them up. So they walk out of this, you know, police headquarters, so to speak, in modern-day terms, right? And their backs are all beaten. They're probably, you know, making sure that everybody's doing okay they're they're probably tending to some wounds and as they're walking out listen to what it says it says when they called in the apostles they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then they let them go and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name they were rejoicing that who counted them worth? It was like that God looked at them and said, Yes, you can actually share in my suffering. They were rejoicing because, like, we're a part of this, man. We're in this. Jesus suffered. We saw it. We saw the same council. And for them, it's pretty clear, right? Because, like, Jesus suffered in front of that same council. Now they're suffering in front of that same council of people. It's the same eyes that Jesus looked into, or the eyes the apostles looked into, that, you know, was trying to beat them up. Same people. But they said, I, I We're just excited. That were suffering as they walked out of that, you know, police station with their backs bruised and probably some blood coming out of their face and maybe a uh, cut over their eye because they got hit. Like they're walking out, tending their wounds, but still rejoicing. Okay. Here's what I'm trying to say. Let's bring this to true north. Let's bring this to your life. I- I'm not expecting you to get put in front of a council, beat up, released, and rejoice this week. Okay? I'm not saying that. I'm not even telling you you should look for that because scriptures don't tell you to look for that. That's why the word is not chase hostility or seek hostility. It's to embrace it when it comes. Don't run from it. Don't seek it out, but stand your ground. If people are going to be hostile towards you, I'm not saying, hey, let's, let's develop martyr complexes and all of us you know should just try to suffer as much as we can this week. Like No, because if you do that, you're probably going to do what we read in First, in first Peter 2 in the scripture reading. Do you notice that when Drew read that, it was like, okay, uh, Peter says, if you suffer for doing good, it's a great thing in God's eyes. But if you suffer for doing evil, if you suffer because you're a thief or a meddler or someone who's doing wrong, like, there's no reward for that. If you, if you suffer for your own consequences, well, then tough. I mean, that's a bummer, but, like, that's not the kind of suffering Jesus is talking about. But if you suffer and you're excluded this week because you want to do what's right, and people say stuff about you that's not true. They say that you're such a hateful person. Did you hear that that person's a Christian? They're a bigot. It's like, that's not true. You're not a bigot. You don't hate people. It's wrong. They lied about you, okay? And it's like, what do you do about that? Well, leap for joy is what Jesus says. Rejoice in that day. Be excited. Not that you're excited that people are slandering you, right? We don't want to rejoice in their sin, but rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer for the name. Count worthy that Like, hey, you have God's approval, Right. Have you ever been in a situation maybe scary or dangerous? Maybe you're traveling. Maybe it's just as simple as you being with your family at a sporting event where you're rooting for the opposite team. Have you ever been in that situation? Right? The whole you know, Angel Stadium is full of red and, and you're the blue Dodger fan, right? which honestly doesn't really matter. It's when you go to Dodger Stadium and you're rooting for the opposite team. That's what actually matters though, if you've ever been there and you know. Uh, there's like, I remember when I was young, there was a Giants fan who got beat up and killed in the parking lot. Yeah, at Dodger Stadium. So don't go to Dodger Stadium. Not, uh, you can go, but you know, go with your dad. Uh, you know. But this guy, sorry. But this guy got beat up and he, he died. I think like he probably wasn't unprovoked. He, he probably did wrong. I mean, he probably didn't deserve to get you know, beat up and killed, obviously. I'm not saying that. But uh, you ever been in a situation like that where it's kind of scary, and then you get back in the car and you drive away, And you just kind of take a deep breath, right? It's like, glad we got out of that. I'm glad that's over. Because when I was out there, a lot of hostility, a lot of people against me, but when it's back to you, you know, sitting in the minivan in the seat that you've picked when you're seven years old, and you sit back down there, and it's like, we made it out of there, man. That feels really good, okay? That is what Jesus is trying to describe about persecution. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's dangerous. But there's going to come a time where you sit back in the comfortable seat with the people that are all on your team, the apostles, the prophets, the people that are with you, and you can take a big sigh of relief. And he says even when you're in the scary situation, rejoice. Be glad. Leap for joy. Don't be scared. Don't be ashamed. Because you're going to get back in the car really soon, and it's all going to be over. All the persecution that anyone faces is temporary. Paul says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He's trying to say that we're suffering now if you do what's right. Oh, by the way, you can avoid all this suffering by not doing what's right. You you could do that. But Jesus says happy are the people who actually suffer. Happy are the people who are willing to take it. Because whatever insults, whatever exclusion, whatever slandering, once you get back in the car with your family, it's like, at least I'm safe now. That's what's going to happen. That's going to be the experience of every Christian who suffers for Jesus. I want to encourage you to not be afraid of that, not run away from that this week, okay? Let me pray. God would help us take this in. God, please help us with this. It's It's a scary one. It's a hard one. Thinking of peacemaking and thinking of persecution, we know that Jesus lived this out. We know that he lived it out so well that he experienced the ultimate persecution of being put to death. So I pray for everyone Who's listening to my voice here in True North, to be bolder to do what's right and not scared or calculating the consequences all the time of doing what's right, but they do what's right no matter the consequences and they would rejoice if they're suffering for it. They'd rejoice if they miss out for it. They'd rejoice most importantly because they're on your team. Pray for some of us who are not on your team to realize this morning that that's the reason why we're refusing to become Christians and submit to you because we're scared of what people think pray that we'd realize how silly and trivial that is and how short-lived it is pray that you convince us by this sermon and strengthen us as a group to be bold for you pray these things in Jesus name amen